Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. So I've been at the uh, writing about technology industry game for over 23 years now, uh, which is kind of scary when you think about it, or at least it is scary for me uh, that I've been alive that long, <laughs> let alone working on one particular thing. Uh, and for me, it started actually as an email newsletter, which was originally called Up to Date, uh, that I released weekly back in 1997. And that slowly morphed into TechDirt and a blog over the next couple of years. Uh, and somehow, uh, and I still don't quite understand how I've managed to keep doing that uh, independent of any other media property uh, for all of that time. Uh, I wouldn't recommend trying to replicate the way that I did things from scratch necessarily. Uh, most tech journalists start out working uh, for a real media organization of some kind and uh, learning the ropes that way. Uh, but these days there are all sorts of questions about how the media industry is changing and, and whether or not more journalists might want to make a go of things on their own rather than sticking with a larger media organization. And indeed, there are new tools and services that have sprung up uh, in the last few years, really, that make it easier and easier to to uh, go out on your own and do these things yourselves. Uh, I mean, back when I started, uh, blogging wasn't even a word, <laughs> let alone something that anyone could set up. Uh, and of course, these days, uh, blogging is the old, tired thing, uh, and the new hotness is uh, going back to email newsletters, just like I started many, many years ago. Uh, apparently, I was uh, way, way, way ahead of the curve on that one. Uh, but it's actually been really fascinating to me to watch different journalists embracing these new tools and services, uh, as well as... Um, using sort of the credibility and followings that they've built up to go solo. And so one great example of that is Casey Newton, who took, uh, I would say, much more traditional path through the uh, journalism field, starting with actually getting a degree in journalism, which is something I've never done, uh, and then working for local newspapers and then moving into online media uh, at CNET and then for the past seven years or so at The Verge, where he built up a well-deserved reputation for both thoughtful analysis about the tech world and breaking some really great and well-reported stories. Uh, over the last few years at The Verge, he wrote a great uh, newsletter called The Interface, but he recently left The Verge to start up his own independent media operation called Platformer News, uh, which is a newsletter built on Substack's newsletter platform. Uh, and for people looking for it, if you somehow haven't heard of it already, it's at platformer.news. Uh, and I've always been impressed by Casey's thoughtful analysis and reporting and am intrigued uh, by this latest career move. So I invited him on the podcast to discuss. So uh, Casey, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Mike. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and also congrats on the launch of Platformer News. Thank you. It is uh, nice to have something fun and creative to uh, sink your, your teeth into during the end of the world. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is the backdrop of everything right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so let's 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 talk newsletters. Uh, I, I I've been sort of you know trying to watch this space with with quite a bit of fascination because you know my my initial reaction when everybody was suddenly talking about email newsletters was that. You know, it's it seems so old fashioned. It seemed to be almost a step backwards, but it's it's become you know such a a vehicle for so many different reporters and and so many different efforts. You know, what's what's your kind of take on the the email newsletter? Uh, I don't know if it's a revolution or return or or what. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it is a screaming rejection of the mainstream coverage that we get about the technology in particular on on the web and through traditional publications. Um, in the attention economy, the only thing that succeeds is the most scandalized, outraged, resentful piece that gets written. And I think while there's incredible journalism that gets written every day, I think people who are getting most of their news through social feeds are just feeling completely fatigued by the fact that so much of it has an identical tone. And so I think there is a desire to get coverage that is thoughtful and that starts from the assumption that the writer already has your attention. And so they don't need to rely on any headline trickery to get you to read. And I think once you start building a relationship with readers that starts from the assumption that they are going to pay attention, you encourage a much more um, uh, like calm tone that just really feels like a breath of fresh air and an oasis you know, during a time when everything else just feels like five alarm panic all the time. <laughs> That's an interesting. I, 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 I'll be honest. I never even thought of it that way. That it would um, doing it as a newsletter changes the tone. Yeah, I mean, and look, there, there are other things too. You know, the the classic Ben Thompson line is um, email is the only feed that you're checking that I can insert myself into for free, <laughs> right? Um, right? I think a lot of writers who spent the past decade chasing our readers from platform to platform, you know, Twitter to to Facebook and so on. Uh, are getting really tired of that. It's getting harder to find those readers. And, mm -hmm. you know, for most of the the history of written media in particular, um, writers had a direct connection with their readers, right? You subscribe to a newspaper and someone brings it to your house. Um, and I think there is a lot of longing to get back to something like that, um, you know, both from the, the writer and the reader's perspective. But I think this tone thing is really under discussed. And, you know, I would in encourage you and your listeners maybe to just, you know, like scroll through your Twitter feed and, and see if you feel like there's a wide variety of tones in the stories that you're reading <laughs> or see if they basically all have the same tone. And if it's the latter, I think that starts to explain why people are increasingly turning uh, to the inbox for something different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, again, like, I, um, you know, I'm sort of thinking back in terms of the stuff that we do. I mean, certainly like, Tector, we have our own sort of outrage, <laughs> which we've sort of grown up with. But but you know, I and and it has always been important to us. Like we, um, you know, perhaps to our own detriment, never chased after these things. Like we've never done anything with Facebook effectively. Yeah, like yeah. you know, our stories are posted there, um, but I've never relied on Facebook for for anything. We don't actually get much traffic from there. Um, I remember right. this conversation I had with with. Um, someone in the space 
uh, who I, I won't name to, to protect them, but like I was having a conversation with them maybe a year or two ago and they were saying, well, you know, yeah, of course we've all learned how to, you know, game Facebook and get our extra, you know, million to 2 million views a month. And I was like, wait, I, I, I haven't done that. <laughs> but then, you know, I, I, it's always felt weird to me to do that. I've always felt that like, it's so much better to build up a relationship, though, in my case, it's more focused on just having people come to TechDirt every day, as opposed to, you know, I sort of gave up the, the newsletter aspect of it. Um, right. But it's, it's interesting that, that, you know, people are coming to that same place, but, but, with the newsletter being sort of the, perhaps the more useful vehicle for it. Yeah, I mean, I think um, a a constant over the past 20 years has been changes in distribution. And I think mm -hmm. as journalists, we have focused mostly on the editorial aspect of what we do for very good reasons. But I think it has hamstrung us because as, you know, the web disrupted print and then social platforms disrupted the web, a lot of us kind of got caught not knowing where our job was going to be in five years <laughs> or even if it would exist at all. Right. And so I think part of um, surviving and hopefully thriving in the media industry in, in the 2020s is that like every journalist is going to have to begin every project with distribution in mind. It's not about simply creating the thing. It's about figuring out what is the best way to get this to uh, the, the the right people um, or, or the maximum number of people and and you know th those wind up being pretty different games. Yeah. Do you do you worry at all? Um, and I'm <laughs> now this is turning into me just expressing my own fears about things. But like, yeah. Do you do you worry about like um, newsletter fatigue in some sense? Like, you know, my my I think my gut reaction when newsletters came back was like, you know, I I'm subscribed to a ton of newsletters from years back that I just never read. And, yeah. and, and my email, you know, is filled with junk that I just immediately filter and, and don't even recognize is there after a while. And so I always my, my gut reaction was that newsletters would would end up falling into that same thing. Uh, I mean, I don't know how you deal with that other than just like, you know, being really good. So people, you know, look forward to reading what you have to say. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, was there blog fatigue? Is there like YouTube channel fatigue? Like on some level? Yes. Like there are more people creating content than any of us can ever digest, but the internet also affords us with the ability to create these really powerful niches. Right. And mm -hmm. when one of the reasons that a newsletter was so attractive to me was that if I could find a thousand subscribers, I had a great job in journalism, right? Like way better than the median job in journalism. If I get 2000 subscribers, then it's like probably a top 5% of all journalism jobs. And if I can get, if I can get 3000 subscribers, I, I've got more than, uh, you know, pretty much any media company would ever pay me. And so in that world, it doesn't matter if there's newsletter fatigue because I already found my 3,000 subscribers. And when you're talking right. about internet scale, those 3,000 subscribers, I think, are going to exist for a lot of different kinds of people. Yeah. That, I, I mean, that's you've convinced me. I feel like I should get into the newsletter business. <laughs> you should! <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. Um, so... Um, and just for people who don't know it, and, and you know, we have there's a whole bunch of different kinds of people who listen to this. Do you want to just talk a little bit about Substack because I, I know you're using it, um, and that's become sort of the newsletter, uh, you know, platform of choice for people for a lot of people. Um, and so uh, let's let's talk a little bit about Substack. Why you decided to use it? What it what it lets you do that that you're excited about? 
Yeah, so um, there were a couple of options as I was thinking about doing this. One was to effectively like roll my own mm-hmm. platform and you know hire someone, create a, a site, um, use some you know various plugins and um, this Patreon-owned company called Memberful and and kind of figure it out. Um, that's uh, what Ben Thompson did, and Ben has been like my inspiration for so much of, of what I'm doing now. And I thought about it a lot, but I also became convinced that, like, personally, I wanted to make this move before the election. And then if I was going to do that, timing was just going to be a factor. And so because Substack is so simple to use, I could basically just upload a logo, pick a color, and bingo, I had my publication. And so that was really attractive to me. Um, They also offered to help me out with a couple of things. So um, one is they have a legal defender program. Um, So, you know, uh, Mike, I know, you know, (laughs) Tector has faced some scurrilous lawsuits in the past. Um, You know, what what Substack has said is that they will um, allow me to get like pre-publication review on things if I'm nervous um, or if I am, um, you know, sued by some um, unscrupulous billionaire. They've said that they will choose some cases to defend and, and spend a lot of money doing so. So that was really important to me as a you know terrified first-time entrepreneur. I thought that could really come in handy, even just for sort of the peace of mind. Um, and then the second thing that they offered was um, helping me to figure out healthcare. So as a freelancer, that mm-hmm. was kind of my you know maybe my my number one concern is like, wait, how is this going to work? You know, they hooked me up with a company. I clicked a couple buttons, and now I have healthcare. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I pay for most of it. They offered me a, a small subsidy um, that will probably go away at some point. Um, and so those are sort of the three big things. You know, there's also this question of because Substack has become the go-to platform for people looking to create paid newsletters, will there be some sort of um, community benefits? I, I want to stop short of saying a network effect. But if you go to <laughs> Substack.com, like eventually will they build tools that say, oh, well, if you like this newsletter, you'll probably also like this newsletter. And will that sort of help me find new paid subscribers over time? Um, that's more of an open question. But it's something that I'm interested in. Um, but, you know, I think the last thing that I would say is while I've been really happy with Substack, I really like the people there. They've been fantastic to me. Um, I should also say that just moving to Substack, my the size of my my free list grew um, by about 25%. Um, like I'm above 30,000 free subscribers now, which is like really huge growth for me. And I do attribute um, a, a good amount of that to Substack. I'm also trying not to rely too heavily on them, right? Like if this business only works because of features that Substack built, it's probably not that great of a business. I think the real challenge is going to continue to be, how do you design a really good editorial product that people want to pay for? Right, right. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me. And um, the the Legal Defense Fund, which is something they only recently announced, I, I, I'm, I think that's so fantastic, right? Because the, these are the kinds of things that, that, create so much trouble for, you know, smaller and independent, uh, writers, um, and just even the ability for, for people to threaten, um, you know, to, to threaten independent writers and, and cause them to back down because they don't have that kind of thing. Um, even like the pre-publication review is huge, right? Um, uh, I, I think that's really wonderful. And so that's interesting to me, just in the sense of like Substack is sort of building this infrastructure that lets you just sort of, you know, jump in. Um, very easily. Um, 
What, what I think they've been really good at doing is identifying what are the things that are preventing more writers from mm-hmm. going independent. And they've, they've just, you know, interviewed a lot of writers and they've made a list of sort of the top concerns and they're just kind of going down that list and seeing what they can do to make it easier for people to jump. And that, you know, that has a lot of benefits for writers, right? Like I think, yep. you know, they're probably thinking more about those things than the media companies that most writers are, are still working for right now. Um, and, you know, I think that you know, poses some interesting questions for media companies. Yeah. Do, do you have, uh, and, and this is not to a knock on Substack because I'm, I'm super impressed with them and I think they're great. And, um, but do you have any worry about when you're on that particular platform that now you're to some extent reliant on them and if they change direction or do something different that, you know, are you at all worried about effectively, you know, being stuck on the, with the decisions that they make? Yeah. So, you know, like the platformer is a site about platforms and platform (laughs) dynamics typically play out the same way, like everywhere. And so that was and remains a concern. Um, I think, you know, two, two things um, made that less of a concern for me. One is um, there is no actual lock-in on Substack. So if I got mad at Substack for whatever reason, I could take my email addresses, I could take my Stripe relationships, and I could go set up on WordPress. And would it be a hassle? Yes, but it's like totally possible. Um, and I, I wouldn't lose much by doing that. And then the other thing is, I thought, you know, for, for my personal decision to make this leap, um, it's probably going to take a year or two before I know if it was like a really good decision. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I just don't think Substack is going to change that much, right? Because like Substack is also still kind of in the discovery phase. They're also seeing how good of a business this is. And so it's really in their interest to maintain really friendly terms for writers. Um, You can definitely do some interesting speculation around how would those terms become less friendly over time. But I just don't think it's going to happen in the next two years, which like I think is the amount of time I'm going to need to um, establish myself basically. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a good bet. I mean, I think I was thinking along the lines of like, you know, there are different, you know, smaller independent media properties that bet heavily on medium and then got completely sort of screwed over <laughs> once or twice or three times, depending on how you look at it. Right. Although, you know, it's it's such an, uh, a great comparison, though, because medium never had any idea what it was doing. Right. right. It like had this vague notion of, well, we'll create some magazines and we'll hire all these journalists and we'll have this ad supported model. But then, you know, one day Ev is going to wake up and decide he doesn't (laughs) like ads. And so all those magazines are going to go away, but then they're going to come back. And now it's a subscription, (laughs) right? Like they've just sort of been all over the place. And Substack just started with a much simpler idea, which is let's find the people whose writing is good enough that people will pay them to read it and then create a platform for letting them do that. Like that is such a simpler, purer, better business model than everything Medium has tried. Yeah. And I think, and I think it's true. And certainly the folks at Substack have like a very clear vision and a very clear goal of what it is that they're trying to do. And they're sort of, you know, building in these little, you know, tactics to get towards that goal. And it has, you know, they've had that sort of North star and they haven't, you know, gone off of that. Whereas you're right, that, that medium was um, very much kind of the whims of Ev at times. (laughs) Right. Completely. Um, And, and just for people who don't know, like, you know, the, um, 
and and you know i figured like we live in this world so we we know how this works but but for those who don't like the the business model setup of substack is is pretty straightforward which is that you know you have uh it's an email newsletter and there you can set it up in all different ways but in your case and and what what i think is the most common is that people can sign up for free in which case they get you know a certain number i think in in your case is what like one uh, yeah. newsletter a week um and then people can pay a certain price and get a lot more yeah um, that's exactly right and and um and i i think like that's it's it, there's one interesting thing and this is you know something that was sort of uh I guess, you know, everyone thanks Ben Thompson as sort of the pioneer of this model and it's worked really well for him. Um, and I'm sort of curious, like how, how do you figure out the balance between like the free and paid stuff? Yeah. So, um, I am fortunate that I can just, um, copy a lot of things that Ben Thompson already figured <laughs> out. Um, so thank you again to Ben. Um, you know, but I think Ben's model is really beautiful in its simplicity. You know, there are, uh, a large number of people that are happy to hear from Ben once a week. And once a week, he's going to come in and drop a really smart, thoughtful piece of analysis. And people can get that absolutely for free. And he's going to, um, you know, make that the case forever. Um, but some subset of those people are going to think, gosh, this guy's really smart. Like I'm getting really smart about my uh, my job and about this industry by reading this person. And he writes another three times a week. Like I should check that out. Like that's probably worth 10 bucks a month to me. And so, you know, they, they started subscribing and now Ben has a really successful business. And of course, each of those free articles that he publishes is a chance to attract some new customers, right? You never know which of your articles is going to become a, a bit of a viral sensation. Um, so you want to have some free stuff that is, is sort of bringing people in. You know, at the same time, um, I really do believe that the 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 level of detail and granularity that um, that folks like him and and I think me are going into day to day um, might not make sense for a giant free audience, right? Like I, mm -hmm. I am writing stuff. I mean, you know, it's it's sort of two things. I think I'm writing about the most important stuff in the world because like every writer does. Right. Um, but you know, it's also undeniably niche, right? Like I'm not going to have a lot of viral sensations, um, you know, where you know writing about some Twitter platform decision. So the question then becomes, if we want to create a sustainable model for this, like for the people who think this is really important work, um, we should probably just ask them to pay for it directly because the alternative is to build some ad-supported model on the web, which it has just become an awful business for all but the largest, most scaled up properties. Or it's to create something that looks more like a traditional newsroom where you're, you know, t taking on massive debt and you're hiring, you know, hundreds of reporters. And then you have to like sort of go build a completely different kind of business. Like, I, like basically all I'm really doing is just returning to the logic of the trade publication, right? It's, right. it's about a specific industry. It is of interest to um, an elite audience within a field. And then we ask them to pay. I, I think the difference here is that for those of us who are writing about internet issues, that niche audience is actually really, really big. Um, and figuring out exactly how big the size of that audience is and how much of it I can capture is like going to be the work of the next 10 years, probably. Yeah. I mean, another way of sort of thinking about it too, which is, I may just be restating what you just said in slightly different words, is is that, you know, the nice thing about about what's happened over the last few years is is that, you know, whereas to do that in the past, even to be just sort of like a trade publication, you you still needed so much, you know, infrastructure or, or initial 
you know, capital effectively to build that up. But but systematically, each part of of the infrastructure, the, all of the costly parts, have been effectively eaten away by by these you know sim- simple or uh, simplified platforms. Um, you know, uh, totally. I mean, you know, like another just like kind of like funny thing I would mention is. Um... Like, I think mobile has actually changed this because so many people are like reading their emails on their phone. And like one of the ways that big um, web publications used to really distinguish themselves was was with like beautiful art and photography. Like none of that even matters anymore. (laughs) Like it's all just text on a screen now, man. Um, And like you can make that really, really cheap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've always, that, that, that makes me feel good because we've always bet on just the text on the screen. <laughs> We're like the only publication that doesn't put images on our, most of our stories now. Um, right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, and, and this is maybe a related question, but, but is also, um, you know, something interesting. I, there's been a lot of discussion about the kind of state of, of tech reporting these days. Yeah. Um, and you know you have complaints from all different directions yeah. <laughs> um, about it. What, what's your general thought on, you know, on on how tech media is doing these days? What they could do better, um, and you know whether or not yeah. some of the complaints are legit. So I am strongly pro tech press. I think <laughs> there is incredible tech journalism every day. And in fact, my newsletter is impossible without it. And one of the reasons that Platformer exists is to highlight and showcase like the very best of what people are doing out there. I think I know way more about the inner workings of tech companies today than I did four years ago. And that is to the credit of reporters who have dug in. Um, a lot of the criticism that gets made about tech journalism right now is that it's like kind of an overcorrection to a sense of panic that set in after 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and that now um, tech reporters sort of want to blame platforms for all of the bad things in the world. And I do think that that is an element of some tech coverage. I, I want to write a piece about what I call platform determinism, which is you know the <laughs> idea that if it yes. happened on Facebook, Facebook must be the sole cause of it. Right. Um, and like, and it's not true. Um, I do think that there is an issue where, um, you know, in journalism, reporters are not um, really coached to develop a set of core principles about the industries that they're covering, right? Like they don't have sort of um, a set of value judgments about the way an industry ought to work. And mm-hmm. so instead, what you get is just a series of stories of, you know, perceived injustices, many of which are real. But I think as a reader, you don't, you just usually don't know where the person is coming from. You know, if you, if you read, uh, you know, a story about like a negative outcome of some platform decision, you don't actually usually know what the reporter thought the right call would have been. And I think that undermines trust in reporting generally, because, you know, it's like when you and I are having a conversation, like we're going to tell each other what we think at the end of the day. And that's actually going to help us trust each other because now we know where each other is coming from. And when you're doing mainstream tech reporting for a big newspaper, you don't usually get that. Right. And so as I built Platformer, one of the things that I tried to do, and I did this with the interface as well, is just have a page where it's like, here's like sort of how I see the world. Here are the questions that I'm investigating. Like, here's what I'm skeptical about. Um, and then hope that that would build trust with readers over time um, and, and and hopefully, you know, lead them to want to become customers. And, and so in that sense, what I'm doing is a bit of a critique of of like, that that kind of journalism that you often see practiced 
at the big papers, which, you know, there, there are good reasons why it exists, but I also understand why people are frustrated about it. Yeah, I think that's that's a really great and concise summary of, of a bunch of the issues with tech reporting. It's sort of like, you know, Jay Rosen, uh, the, the uh, professor of journalism, you know, he always talks about the view from nowhere. Um, and I think you yes. ju what you just described is the view from nowhere where, you know, it's one thing to talk about like a particular decision of a platform and and to critique it. But if you don't, you know, I think there are two issues. One is like, you know, if you if you're not presenting some element of value judgment, you're you know, you're not really telling the whole story, whether or not people agree with your particular value judgment. Um, but also it 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 always you know, when, when reporting is done that way, I think it often takes it out of the, the larger context of, you know, why are the companies really doing this? What are the different pressures? What are the different trade-offs? You know, and, and that's been my biggest complaint about some, some of the reporting is like the, you know, whether, whether the reporter knows it, whether or not, you know, the, the publication allows it, um, you know, putting it into the, the larger nuance of, you know, every decision has trade-offs <laughs> uh, yeah. and here are the different trade-offs of this decision. And here's, you know, what, what is good about it. Here's what's potentially bad about it. Um, I think is so valuable, but is, is very rare in, in a lot of reporting today. Um, yeah, I think so. But it's like, you know, as journalists, we, like, we just sort of get to like lead by example, you know, like we can just critique by doing it a different way. And, you know, the, the thing that really concerns me is that, you know, particularly at some of the venture firms in Silicon Valley now, you see this anti-journalist sentiment that I actually think is really, really dangerous, right? It's like yeah. borderline fascist. There are a lot of venture capitalists who, who at least if you, you know, take some, their tweets and blog posts seriously, really almost want journalism to go away completely, um, you know, and, um, and that really doesn't serve anyone, you know? So for the most part, I'm happy to read an article and see what facts it contains and just, you know, use the, use the media literacy I've acquired over the past couple of decades <laughs> to kind of sift out, you know, any perspectives that I think are sort of bogus and under-considered. And then just, you know, you use the remainder to, to inform, you know, my knowledge of things. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, <laughs> on one hand, like, you know, everybody hates the press all the time. It's, you know, there's nothing right. easier to do than just find a bad story about something somewhere. Um, but like, we actually need way more defenders of the press and we need more people talking about why we have a press to begin with and, and how much better yeah. off we are because we have people who are out there who are, you know, able to ask hard questions. And, you know, if it's not perfect, like, yes, we can talk about the imperfections, but it's just very easy for that conversation to suddenly become, why do we have a press at all? Why do we let these people say whatever they want? you know shouldn't we just let people sue them a little bit more easily <laughs> and like that just like makes the the hair on the back of my neck stand up yes yes as it should <laughs> yes yeah. i agree with you 100 percent on that i mean i think <laughs> yeah. it's i also think it's funny that that you know a lot of the people who are now complaining in the in the sort of tech and vc world you know had about 20 years where they got nothing but fawning press you know, <laughs> coverage about you know how they were like the masters of the universe and saving the world and all this kind of stuff and and you know it we really lacked a lot of important critical journalism um and i think you know i i've tr i've said this before where I, like i think both of these things can be true that like you know, the, the media did not cover the tech industry very well in general for many years and, and gave them a huge pass. Um, and also that, you know, in some of the more critical reporting these days is, is missing some of the important nuance and, and, and understanding. Yeah. And both of those things can be true. And you have this mix. And also, obviously, as, as you've 
said and and everybody should recognize like you know the tech press is not a monolithic entity right i mean you have all different reporters with all different skills and all different you know sets of knowledge and all different perspectives and so there are some bad stories and frankly you know i've written some bad stories <laughs> you know i try yeah. not to but <laughs> i've done it everybody's done it sooner or later you're you're writing enough stuff you're going to screw up um but you know i i think you're right that that on the whole um I think the tech press has done a lot better of a job of late, um, especially understanding complex issues. Um, and, and, you know, I, I would like to think that some of that is actually because of like, at least for me, now maybe I shouldn't, I shouldn't put this on other people, but I'll, I'll <laughs> give from my own perspective, like, you know, having things like social media where we can have these conversations and kind of hash out ideas like has given me much greater insight into different perspectives and recognizing like, oh, this thing that as a gut reaction I thought was a crazy, crazy idea, like there is a good rationale behind it and I should think through that when I'm writing about it. I totally agree. I mean, I, I feel way smarter because, you know, as, as much as people want to slag on Twitter for, you know, being a hell site that corrodes your mind and like, I'm sure it is in some ways, it, it also helps you understand how people think, which is, is hugely valuable for a bunch of reasons. But I wanted to say, you know, something about th this idea, w which you hear repeated a lot that, you know, that the tech press did nothing but fawning coverage, you know, for, I don't know, the between like, you know, at the, the, the end of the dot-com boom and like 2016. Um, and certainly there was a lot, you know, much less skeptical coverage. But one really important reason why that was the case was the tech industry was way smaller. <laughs> like there was yeah. a time when Apple and Google and Facebook were not the three biggest companies in the entire world. And I think it's only <laughs> natural that reporters are going to apply less skepticism to, to yes. companies that are smaller. And, you know, you could say, look, you know, these guys should have had perfect, um, perfect vision. Like during that time, they should have known that these companies were going to become the largest companies in the world. But you go back and you read the coverage of like the Facebook IPO, it's not fawning. It actually spent no. most of its time talking about how the company was never going to work, uh, that its, <laughs> its valuation was insane, and that the whole thing was a stupid idea. So, you know, people love to talk about like, or, you know, coverage of early Facebook in particular, like it was so fawning. And it was like, no, it was deeply skeptical. It was just completely wrong. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, and, and honestly, I mean, I think it's tough for people to even realize, like, to look at the reporting on Facebook uh, going back pre-2016. And, you know, um, it's really incredible how much it's changed just since the election and how much I think the, the, the presidential election in 2016 has impacted the way we think about Facebook for better or for worse. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it definitely changed my own reporting about Facebook. You know, like, if, if you look at my reporting about Facebook before 2016, there's a lot of it that is very access driven, that is like very puffy, you know, like they launch some new app and I write about it and I just sort of tell you what the app does and that's as far as it goes. Um, I don't think that kind of coverage is awful, by the way. I enjoy reading about new technology <laughs> products, right? Like not everything has to have life or death stakes. Um, <laughs> but to the extent that I wrote really skeptical coverage, it was actually about Facebook swallowing the news media, right? And of course, this was mm -hmm. very like self-interested and I always tried 
wanted to note the fact that, you know, my own livelihood was wrapped up in what was happening, but I actually was very skeptical of Facebook's power. I only just saw it in that really like narrow, limited dimension. And then it was only after the election that I thought, oh my gosh, this thing is super powerful. And I didn't even actually understand how powerful it was. And like, now I need to actually probably reorient my career around investigating what I had missed and like try to be smarter about it. So like in that sense, it was a, a really powerful wake up call. And I definitely have regrets about the way that I covered big tech platforms before 2016. Um, but again, a lot of it just was not visible until they became literally the biggest companies in the world. Yeah. I mean, and what's interesting too is like, I would almost argue that certainly a lot of people at Facebook didn't, didn't realize these things either and perhaps still haven't realized the, yeah. the you know, the impact or, or the direction of the impact that they have um, on, on different areas of the world. So it's, it's, you know, I'm not sure anyone kind of caught it. And even the people who claim that they did, you go back and you look at kind of like what they were saying about like, you know, the threats of Facebook or whatever, and they weren't, they didn't really <laughs> have have the the issues down uh, exactly either. Um, you know, predicting the future is really hard. <laughs> Turns out, if you could predict the future, you'd have a paid email newsletter right now, Mike. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Going going for twenty three years. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, uh, to, to kind of wrap up the conversation, this is this is really fascinating, all of it. But um, you know what? What I know you just started, and so this is this is a horrible question to ask. But but what's what's next? What do what are you hoping to be able to accomplish with it? Yeah. So the you know the first goal was like get a get a thousand paid subscribers, right? Like if I can do that, I can breathe basically. Right. Um, and. Um, I'm happy to report that I got there. Uh, my readers were awesome. I actually got it during what I considered like the goodwill period of platformer. Like it was before the paywall even went up. So um, that was a really powerful signal to me that there was going to be a business here. Um, mm. The next milestone is to get to 2000. Um, I sent my uh, free subscribers a note last night just saying, hey, like the, the, the paywall is going up on Monday. You're not going to receive this edition, um, but let's see if we can get to 2000. And what I told them was, if we get to 2000, I'm going to do a recorded daily audio version of the column, which is another ripped off Ben Thompson idea that his customers <laughs> love, but also now my readers are asking me to do, which is why it's on my mind. Um, and so that's kind of the next milestone. It, it, it's really like, I really sort of think about the business in thousand subscriber increments. It's like e mm. for each thousand subscribers that you can add, you just enable this new range of possibilities. You know, I would like to bring on an editor at least part-time to fix all of my many mistakes. Um, I'd like to explore bringing on someone to do visuals. I'd like to bring on someone to help me um, put together the links that are at the bottom of the, the newsletter each day, which are a huge part of the newsletter. Um, but, you know, but I also have like relatively modest ambitions for it. I don't want to build a traditional uh, newsroom. I think about it more in terms of building a Scooby gang. Like I want seven people who get in a mystery van and travel around the country <laughs> with me solving platform uh, related mysteries. Um, and you know, like you're not going to need more than like probably seven or eight or 9,000, uh, subscribers to like get it to that place. And so I feel like the goal, um, is, uh, very, uh, defined. Um, and it, it's just going to become a question of like, can my writing and reporting and journalism like be that good that I can attract an audience that big? And that, that's the big question mark. 
Right. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's cool. And as as someone who has built up, uh, you know, a, a small organization that is in that, you know, sort of five person size range. Um, yeah, it, there's there's something quite nice about it when you, you know, when you have the right people around you and, and you're able to do it and you don't have to focus on, you know, how do I build a hundred person newsroom or something like that? Or, or how do I cover everything? Um, and, and you can, you know, you sort of make you know, make decisions based on, you know, I have this core audience and this is what they expect and, and I can deliver that. Um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, value there and it's, it, it's in some ways, you know, creatively freeing, even if like some people might think of it as limiting. So. Uh. Yeah. And also I think like, you know, to, with tech dirt, it, it, it's, um, you know, uh, it, I mean, I think of it as like a Silicon Valley institution and it's, and it's precisely because of that small size that I just think the people who know it think like, Oh yeah, like I know those people. Like I trust them, right? <laughs> I have a sense of who they are. I know what they stand for. I know what they care about. Um, and like once you get to a publication that's like Forbes, it's like, well, who is Forbes? What is <laughs> right. Forbes? What does Forbes care about? I don't know, you know. And so I think there's just such an opportunity to come in and build those like the, the newsrooms, like the one that you have built, um, and, and just unlock a lot of uh, really cool possibilities. Cool. Well, um, you know, for for anyone who's listening who, um somehow doesn't know about Casey or, or doesn't know about platformer news, please check it out. And there is a, the free uh, newsletter version that you can subscribe to if you want. And then uh, as you read that and, and like it, you know, you can, you can do the paid version as well. Um, and uh, hopefully as you've heard, he's very thoughtful and insightful on all of these things, which I think will interest a lot of the people who listen to this podcast as well. So uh, hopefully I can get you, you know, maybe two or three more subscribers. <laughs> I would like, and hey, Mike, if you want to, you know, buy a subscription for the, for Tech Dirt, group subscriptions are available. Ah, there we go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Excellent. Um, very cool. Well, Casey, thank, thanks so much for taking the time and, and um, you know, for, for, thinking through all of this and doing all the work that you've done. And, and I'm excited to, to see where you go with it. Um, and, and, and best of luck with it. Thanks, man. I appreciated the, the fun conversation. Cool. And thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week. Uh, if we don't stand up to them, someone will get.